Hey, one more thing before you go. In this episode, we're going to learn what it's like to be a comedian, an entrepreneur, a trauma survivor, and a mental health advocate, trying to make life for everyone a little more positive and bringing a smile and laughter along the way. I'm your host, Michael Hurst. Welcome to One More Thing Before You Go. My guest in this episode is Christiane, better known as C.A. Knubel. She's an author, a mental health advocate, a comedian, and a business owner with a proud history of homemanship. We'll talk about that. Hitting a major turning point in her life, she launched a mental health project called Mentally Kill, it connecting patients and advocates, doctors and therapists from all over the world, but more importantly, within herself. She's been a stand-up comedian for the last three years and recently launched a podcast based on a book she wrote in her early 20s called The Whole Handbook. We're going to learn her journey, how she got to where she is today, and how she can help you. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. Christy, you got an amazing journey. Uh, you've really diverse. you got so many fingers in the pot. you got all these different things that you're doing, and you manage it all with a smile and laughter, and uh, I appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah, I do have a lot going on. I'm pretty busy, pretty busy woman. So, you know, it's one of those things. I think that if you know, I'm retired. So when I retired, I kind of learned that uh, I didn't like. Well, for probably the first month, I liked sitting around watching TV for a while. <laughs> but after that, I got kind of bored. Said, "Man, I got to start doing stuff again." So keeping busy is always a good thing. Absolutely. <laughs> like I said, you've got a really, really interesting journey, and I can't wait to share it with everybody. I like to start in the beginning. So can we talk a little bit about where you grew up? Sure. I grew up in Philadelphia, PA. I'm still here. Looking to move soon, though, actually. I think I've had enough of Pennsylvania for a lifetime. So, <laughs> um, yeah, I grew up in Pennsylvania, and then I went to high school in Levittown, PA, and then I went to college in Bloomsburg, PA. So so you went to college in Bloomsburg. What did you want to be when you grew up? I went for a dual major in criminal justice and German. Well, the criminal justice I can relate to from being a retired police officer. What part of criminal justice did you like or what intrigued you? I wanted to be a detective. Detective. We all want to be detectives. <laughs> uh, yeah, I can say that out loud. And I can say it out loud now. Uh, the, the criminal justice field, why did you not go into that? Uh, my health wouldn't allow it. I couldn't do the police work to meet the requirements. The so. requirements of their, do you have any brothers, sisters? I am actually one of six girls for still surviving, but there six were six girls. of us all together. What was your family like? Uh, well, growing up, I had my two older sisters because my younger sisters were half sisters. Um, I was kind of like the unheard youngest sister. Nobody ever listened to the baby sister. So there's always a player one and a player two, but there's never a player three. Um, and my parents were divorced. So it was really just my two older sisters and my mom. Once you got out of college, what'd you go into? Well, I didn't actually graduate from college. I came home after a Trump traumatic incident happened to me, but I kind of just met up with a really old friend of mine. She's been a friend of mine for most of my life. And 
did what 19 year olds do, you know, um, go out to parties and hang around on couches and just order pizza and drink two liters. That's really just, it. Just like that. Uh, you had mentioned that you are, that you tried a traumatic incident during that time period. Um, can we talk a little bit about that? Sure. What happened? Uh, warning. So I'd like to issue that in advance. Um, I had somebody who I thought had gone to my school offer me a ride home. And I'd seen him for the last six months around my school. So I didn't think it was like a big deal. But it turns out he did not go to my school at all. He had just targeted me for the last six months. And then after he offered me a ride home, took me on the highway instead and led me into the woods and had some sexual assault and knife torture. And somehow I survived and found my way home. So I don't like to get too far into detail with that just because it's pretty graphic. Yeah, I understand. I'm sure that that has helped you to um, once, you know, that, created PTSD and a lot of trauma that uh, a lot of people don't understand that PTSD can be experienced by anybody that has suffered a traumatic incident within their life that has a negative effect on how they operate in their life. And uh, it don't have to be a soldier or a cop or a firefighter. You can be a, a person and still suffer from PTSD. Has that helped you uh, in creating the, uh, the mental health project that you have talked about? I did actually, because for a really long time, I didn't want to know what happened to me. I had a lot of recessed memories. Like I remembered being kidnapped and I remembered finding my way home, but I didn't remember any of the assault in between. Um, so when I lost a little sister in 2020, I had started seeing a therapist maybe five weeks before then. And uh, losing my little sister kind of put me on a downward spiral. And it was actually in April this year when I tried to take my own life that I got diagnosed with mental health conditions. Complex PTSD was one of them. And it caused me to create my mental health project. So. Well, I, I commend you for that because, you know, not everybody comes out on the other side in a very positive way and, and, and helps to motivate, inspire, and educate others that are going along that same journey. So... Thank you for doing that, by the way. Um, uh, we'll talk a bit more about it, your project here in just a little bit, but uh, I think that you've created an opportunity for people to kind of uh, maybe move forward in life a little bit and understand that they're not alone. So as an individual, as a retired police officer, and as a husband and a father, uh, I appreciate that. Thank you. Very much. Um, what inspired you to write a book at 20? So... <laughs> So I've always kind of been the comedian of my friends group and acting silly. And honestly, this book was kind of just like a little book that I carried around with me. And when I went through different experiences and I learned different life lessons, so to speak, I would write it in this book. And that's when I decided to make it a real book. I've always wanted to be an author. Reading and writing have always been big passions of mine. So when I came back from school and I was kind of this damaged girl, so to speak. I wanted to do something that I could be proud of. And I wrote the hoe handbook. Of all things I could have written, I decided the hoe handbook would be the thing that I would be the most proud of. So, Well, you know, I've got to ask this. I know you've talked about another podcast, but I have to ask. Let, why the hoe handbook? Well, I called it the hoe handbook because hoe has a negative connotation. 
That's exactly why. I wanted it to catch eyes, like Ho Handbook. And it did. It caught a lot of eyes, actually. And that was kind of the point. Number one, I wanted it to get attention, and I knew it would get attention that way. But number two, because I wanted people to understand that it's okay to be promiscuous as long as you're safe about it. So it was okay to be a hoe. I can't wait for the, you, I think you brought it back in so that you could rewrite it, correct? Yeah, so, <laughs> sorry. I realized going back over it that I was pretty toxic in my early 20s. Um, and there are some things in there that I'm like, this is not fair. You can't teach people this. Like one bald guy did you dirty and now they're all trash. It's not how the world works. So I'm rewriting it now because I'm in my 30s from a 30-year-old perspective. And I'm hoping it'll be back out on shelves by June. In June next of next year, 2023. That's, mm. that's Well, that works. I think that's kind of very cool. Um, how did you get involved in comedy? I mean, was that something that you always had? I mean, you said earlier that you kind of were the comedian from the beginning. How did you launch that career? So for me, actually, a couple of years ago, it was the same year. It was in 2020 because it was the same year. I did it two months before the pandemic. Um, <laughs> I had a friend who did on stage comedy and he'd been doing it for a really long time. And we actually had just reconnected on Facebook um, back and forth messaging. And he had a venue where they did um, stand up comedy. And he said, well, why don't you come out on stage and give it a try? And my family was real supportive. Like, yeah, get out there, go do it. So I did. And I did good. So well, you're in good company, obviously. There's Ali, uh, some of our favorite comedians are, are women Ali Wong, Tiffany Haddish, Amy Schumer, Silver, Sarah Silverman, Eliza Schlesinger. always mess her name up, Schlesinger, um, <laughs> Taylor Tomlinson, I uh, love Taylor. Nicole Byer, Wanda Sykes. I mean, some of our favorite uh, comedians. So you're in good company when you did that, when you took that or embarked upon that. What's it like being on the road? Well, I don't do really on the road, but mm -hmm. <laughs> I have like I have traveled for comedy, but usually it's within, you know, like an hour or so drive just because I don't I have a 10 year old, so I can't just, you know, up and leave. Yeah, I can't just up and leave at any time. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, it'd be nice, but I actually am hosting my very first show of my own in December. So I'm pretty excited about that. How do you come up with material? Life. Life gives me material, and I just put it into words, um, honestly. Usually I use kind of like my handbook for now, because for me, I wrote a 45-minute set out of that, and I've never gotten to do the full 45 minutes, so I've kind of been playing around with that. But I mean, again, I was the youngest of three girls for a single parent, and there's enough material in that for hours of stage time, so... I would imagine I have two daughters and my youngest always felt her oldest our you know, her older sister took all the spotlight from her. We were very fair with both just to be on the record. <laughs> everybody's listening and watching. <laughs> but she always she always felt that way just a little bit. I mean, I think as a parent, when we have more than one kid, we try our best to equal it out. But sometimes, you know, your first is kind of like, that's my, that's our first kid. And then you have the second kid and you kind of go, well, I love the second kid as much as I love the first kid. But when you're a third, when you have three, I was a middle child. So I can almost relate to you. Almost. I picked on my little brother, but my older sister picked on us both. <laughs> kind so, of. You know. Well, for me, it was like my two older sisters were like the best of friends and I was not. 
So. <laughs> well, it, my my older sister and I are actually very very close uh, now. My younger brother and I, e -e. <laughs> that's a whole di whole different story. Um, when I ask you this, uh, is it hard as a woman to break into comedy? I don't think so. Honestly, I, I think it's pretty even as far as I've seen. Um, I mean, you deal with a lot of like sexism, true, and right. like perverts, to be fair, you know, but other than that, it's, I think it's pretty cut and dry. Well, I, you I know, I think mainstream, and I've spoken to some other female comedians, and, and you know, they think that uh, it, this day and age, it's more acceptable and things are really, you know, come a long way since um, Mrs. Maisel, when it was difficult for a woman to come onto the comedian scene and difficult to break into the business. Do you book yourself? Yeah. I mean, honestly, I normally you would do, you know, open mics and things like that. People would book you based on open mics, but I don't leave my house. So people just book me just either from what I post on Facebook or just because they've seen me in other shows or just recommendations. Do you have aspirations to go outside of Pennsylvania? Well, I mean, I have done New York, New Jersey, Florida, and have I done Delaware? I don't think I've done Delaware, actually. I've gone to shows in Delaware, but I haven't done it in Delaware yet. So but I, go ahead, I was going to say, I do plan on branching out more. So, um, I know that uh, it, it the East Coast is probably full of comedians. Um, do you think it was more difficult to be a comedian there? Or, or maybe come to the Midwest? I think it is a lot more difficult, actually, because the problem with, especially where I'm at, Philadelphia, everything is kind of like clicks. You know, it's like the same faces on flyers all the time for the same places, and it's never anything different. And it kind of just, I don't want to say it's hard to get in with that. It's just like, do you want to get in with that kind of crowd? Because mm -hmm. for me, it's a no. You know, I don't want to go somewhere where I've seen the same faces on flyers for the last six months because nobody's buying tickets to go somewhere like that. So, what are your aspirations as far as comedy? Comedy is just fun for me. It's not something I ever thought I would make good money off of. It's not something I thought I'd live off of. You know, I don't want to be a starving artist. So, <laughs> Been there, you know. done that. I understand. Um, I mean, it's not to say if something ever came out of it that I would turn it down because that is not true. But at the same time, I have other things that I'm working on, and I have a child to feed, so I have to work. Let's talk about your uh, your project, and and why do you call it a project? Well, because initially it started as a podcast. Um, when I left the hospital and I got my diagnosis, I was kind of by myself. They didn't really give me any information on the diagnoses multiple that I had. And I spent like hours on Google, just searching different web pages, trying to find out like who I am with these conditions. And I didn't think that was fair. So I created an informational podcast that has little 20 minute episodes with each of the 12 main mental health conditions to kind of give you just enough information to where you're not sitting there all day. You know, not everybody wants to sit there for 45 minutes and mm -hmm. hear straight facts about a condition. They want to know what it looks like in you, what it looks like in me, how not to trigger somebody. And that's about it. That's what they want to know. And that's what I did. Um, it turned into a project because now there's so much invested in it. I've created educational material that I'm hoping will go into schools one day. 
I've done interviews with people who have different mental health conditions around the world to show what life is like and give an in-depth perspective, show that we're like normal people, you know? Um, uh, do you think the mental health uh, aspect is kind of a, I won't say a taboo subject within the United States, but do you think it's something that we need to talk more about? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, there a lot of the times, and if you've noticed, there's been an increase in suicides. Um, the reason is because we don't know what the signs look like. We don't know when to reach out. And people who are having suicide ideation or have made a plan aren't exactly looking to reach out to people. Um, it is very hard in those moments. I know because I've been in that moment. It is very hard to want to reach out to someone. But if we educate more on what these signs look like, then we may be able to stop even more suicides from happening. We may be able to stop it at suicide ideation before it turns into a plan. So uh, help us understand. So that, I mean, I, I understand what it is, but help our audience understand what suicidal ideation is, please. So suicidal ideation is where you're having thoughts of suicide. It's not necessarily, there's a fly in here, I mean, not sorry. It's not necessarily where you're starting to make a plan and you start to um, sell your stuff off and things like that, where the real signs and symptoms start to come up for other people to notice. This is just where you're having the idea that you don't want to be here anymore. You know, you're really having trouble with depression or symptoms of depression, and you're really just having a hard time finding reasons to stay. That's where suicide ideation is. Now, do you, that brings up, like, I think, another question um, in regard, I, you know, we're very familiar with, I think, overall, people are familiar with uh, certain types of mental health, depression, anxiety, um, bipolar, you know, those are things that are talked about mainstream and talked about on a regular basis mainstream. We as a society don't necessarily like to talk about these things out loud. And I think we don't talk about them out loud because they feel it is more of a, um, a, a kind of a taboo subject. Do you, do you, I mean, do you agree with that? What do you think we as a society need to recognize? Coming from a person that was diagnosed with certain mental health aspects, what do you think we need to do to help improve that communication? Well, I think educating is a great place to start. Because, I mean, there is a stigma against having even just ADHD or anxiety or depression when really I consider that, and that's just kind of a joke, but I consider ADHD, anxiety, and depression a millennial starter pack. We all have it. We all suffer from it. It's nothing new. So if we educate more on the symptoms and the signs of it, it may be more easy or more highly accepted for people. Because it's just understanding that's really the issue here. I, I mean, I agree with you. And there was, I, I had to laugh about the millennial starter pack. That's kind of, <laughs> uh, that's a unique way of describing that. I'm going to have to talk to my kids about that. <laughs> um, now, they may not appreciate that, but I, I think I'm going to bring up some anyway. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. When did you first start really noticing um, that you needed to, uh, kind of uh, acknowledge or discuss your mental health? Um, honestly, mental health was not talked about in my family. I knew that I had ADHD, but it was never diagnosed. 
Um, it wasn't until I went to the hospital that I got my diagnosis. I'm like, oh, okay. So those behaviors are not actually normal behaviors. Got it. <laughs> you know, I thought all of my behaviors were normal, you know, um, and I have borderline personality disorder. So for me to think like those behaviors were normal just shows you how uneducated I was. And honestly, it's still a taboo subject. My family does not talk about it. Um, it's kind of like, shh, shh, sweep that under the rug. Like, don't, shh, don't tell nobody. You know, meanwhile, I'm on the internet going, so I have borderline personality disorder and, you know. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's kind of like, here I am. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I don't feel that there's anything I should have to hide about my mental health conditions. Because first of all, some of them are genetic. <laughs> so but, let's start there. You know, and, and the whole thing of it is, and, and I think that, you know, coming from, you know, I grew up with uh, alcoholic parents, both of them. And in regard to, for example, in regard to alcoholism, everybody goes, oh, alcoholism, you go to AA, People are very supportive of that. They'll say, are you going through a program? Are you going through rehab? Are you going through this? Are you going through that? But when you bring up, and I've had other conversations with people um, that have come here from other countries and then got involved in, in the, the mental health industry here, you bring up that you have a mental health issue at work, for example, and it's almost, it's almost like um, you just... Blacklisted yourself. Exactly. It, it, it's bizarre because in reality, the number of people who have a mental health disorder within the United States or across the world actually is growing and is growing at such a level that it needs to be recognized more. And I'm sure you, I mean, you yourself understand this and you understand it from your project, which again, that's why I appreciate that because you're bringing an awareness and education and you're bringing the opportunity for people to really have a better understanding and to open a dialogue in regard to saying that, yes, I may have this, but it doesn't make me abnormal. It just makes That's me right. in need of a little help. Yes, as far as the, the mental health stigma, it's a, it's a major problem because we automatically assume that anybody has a mental health condition, they're a monster. You're a monster, shut them away from the public, you know, they're danger to society. And that is so not true. Um, I mean, honestly, even with borderline personality disorder, people hear that and they're like, she has multiple personalities. It's like, no, I just have one really crappy one. Like, that's it. Unfortunately, there's no multiples here. But by giving people this education about even you hear schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorder, people immediately freak out. Like, monster, violence. They're not violent. <laughs> there's no violence. You actually have more of a chance of somebody getting violent that has borderline personality disorder than you do with schizophrenia. But people don't know that because there's not enough education around. Yeah. So it's very easy to get blacklisted, so to speak, when you talk about it in a public venue or work or things like that. Well, yeah, you, you can even, I mean, they let people go if somebody's having to go to AA or having to go to into rehabilitation because of alcohol or drug abuse. They'll give them time off to go do that, but they won't give yeah. them time off for mental health, which I think is something that needs to change in society. And hopefully through, you know, projects like yours, that kind of can move that forward in such a way that people start to recognize that we have to have an open communication about this not make a taboo, not put it in the closet, not hide it, not say that it's abnormal. Because in today's society, it's become more of a norm that, you know, with, especially with ADHD and, you know, anxiety. And, you know, we get 8 billion people in this world. 
And, you know, when you're crammed in with 8 billion people, you know, things are going to happen. You're going to have some anxiety. You're going to have some ADHD with everything that's going on. TV, the bazillion shows that you've got to pick from, the your iPad, your iPhone, your Android, whatever it happens to be, I think is constantly keeping us, I, I won't say, um, trying to get the right word for this keeps us distracted perfect word <laughs> on a consistent basis you know then in that yeah i think a communication needs to open up pretty pretty big so what motivated you to start your podcast uh well the funny one or the mental health one That's let's talk about the funny one first so actually i started my ho on the go podcast in june I had a friend who I had reconnected with when I got out of the hospital that had a network, a podcast network, and he needed a comedy one and asked if I would do one, you know, based on my book. So I did. And it's been going pretty well, actually, because it's not just, you know, jokes. It's it's sexual and self-empowerment. So, yeah, there's sexual stuff, but there's also real life stuff that we go over, like mental health and minorities was an episode. Um, we also have gone over sexual dysfunction. Um, you just, you learn a lot. You always end up learning something on my show and I bring guests on that can give you real life perspective on things as well. Yeah. They're brilliant name, by the way. I mean, Thank you. obviously for the book and for a podcast, that definitely will catch your eye because everybody wants to know what that means and what that is. Oh yeah. <laughs> I'm sure it has caused some kind of an issue though when I book some guests because they're like, uh, no. When they hear the name, I'm like, okay, what am I supposed to say? Well, you know, it is, I think the, you know, we as, a, again, as a society, I think have created certain stigmas around things, including phrases or titles or uh, descriptions of certain aspects. But, you know, we just all have to remember that uh, we're all people and we all experience everything that you're talking about on that show and right. it doesn't have to be shoved under the bed or in the closet you know it can be talked about out loud my family does not agree <laughs> you know <laughs> they were I'm, not happy with the name choice but you know so. it, it's it's sometimes we have to you're a grown woman and uh, you know you can uh, you can pick your own name and uh right. you know, and good for you you know, I, I understand parents sometimes have a, I'm a parent myself, so I have to be careful how I say this. <laughs> sometimes parents can be judgmental for the wrong reason. That's true. You know, for the That's wrong true. reason. And if you're helping people, which it sounds like you are, in the episodes that I've listened to, you are perhaps passing on education, information. You're sharing that people aren't alone and that, uh, you know, there are some solutions uh, then yeah, it's all good. Thanks. You're welcome. Somebody gets it. <laughs> In regard to your the mental health project, the mentally kills. How'd you come up with mentally kill? Pardon me. How did you uh, how'd you come up with that name? So I came up with that name by looking at it this way. If I see three books on a shelf, and one is called Nami, let's say, and one's called CPTSD. And then one's called mentally kill. I'm going to reach for mentally kill. It was meant to catch the eye. And I know it, it's very 
in your face. And that was kind of the point. It's kind of like hell on the go. You know, it was definitely something like, what is that? And now you want to know more. But it's also because the mind can kill. And a lot of people don't realize like, how serious mental health is and how serious it is that we inform more people about mental health conditions. If you don't mind, can we can we talk a little bit about your mental health and how it was diagnosed? I know you said you went to the hospital. Did, did. you go to the hospital because of of suicidal ideation or you had attempted and then you I, ended up in the hospital? I made an attempt. Made an and attempt. in PA, when you make an attempt, they take you from the medical hospital to the mental hospital. Yeah, I think that's pretty standard across the United States. It usually yeah. we did it in Colorado we somebody went in for 72 hours and got evaluated yeah. and you know this kind of thing so i'm assuming the same type of situation yeah but i was there for two weeks so oh, for two, <laughs> wow wow so i'm assuming then you went they talked to a psychologist or a psychiatrist and within yeah. that arena it allowed you to kind of express where you were coming from and and uh, had you realized before that time period that you had suffered any type of mental illness um, well, I knew I had borderline. I knew that straight from the jump just because of behaviors that I had um, and research that I had done. I knew that I had borderline and I knew I had ADHD growing up. Um, depression off and on. I mean, kind of for everybody, but I knew I also had PTSD just because I had flashbacks and stuff. What I didn't know is that I had actually CPTSD, which is complex post-traumatic stress disorder. Just, just a little more symptoms. Um, they did diagnose me with psychosis, but that's not something that I kind of agree with. I guess you could say I'm looking to get reevaluated. That's just because of my behavior when I first got to the hospital. Um, but when I first got to the hospital, I spent between 30 and 40 hours in the waiting room because they didn't have a room for me yet. And in those 30 to 40 hours, I had nothing to do but think about my trauma. And you I spent, unlocked. Pardon me. You spent 30 to 40 hours in the waiting room? Yeah. Yeah. That's how it is sometimes. At the mental, at the, at the medical facility or the mental facility? The mental facility. Wow. Yeah. And they take your phone as soon as you get in there. So you have nothing to do but wander around and really think about things. And it was the first time I was by myself without any distraction since my trauma. So, um, Oh, yeah, kind of, it was no, not good, not good. No, I think you know. I mean, personally, I think that that um, that would create an environment for more detriment. Yeah, it was being thrust into something like that. It was horrible. So. Well, it you know, I think that once you came out of that um, with a better awareness of where you stood in in possibly what issues that you had to manage. Uh, did you set in place a, a plan how to get those managed or did they set that up for you? They were supposed to set that up for me. Uh, <laughs> they did not. Um, honestly, they didn't really set up much of anything for me. So it was just kind of like, here you go. Out in the world you go. And heavy like on detriment. Med. You know, the only thing they really set up was for the psychiatrist so that I could get more meds when I needed them. I think that's not helpful at all. Wow. I think that's an, I personally, this is my opinion, I'm not a medical doctor, but I think to me, but I have dealt with, with, I have dealt with mental health issues as a police officer, which nowadays are really starting to really focus on that um, because of other incidents that have taken across the United States. 
where they feel that they, you know, we need a better understanding of how to deal with and handle uh, responding to mental health situations. But um, yeah, I think that uh, that's an issue that really needs to be addressed. That uh, putting somebody in a situation like that, and then just throwing them out the door without a plan of action, is not cool. Does your your mentally mentally kill project help with those solutions for other go, others going through this? Unfortunately, I'm not in a position to help other than to give um, people information on where they can find outpatient therapy and things like that. Really what mine does is kind of give a safe space for people who want to talk things out. I have my Talk It Out Tuesdays where we go live and we pick a different subject. Like yesterday, we talked about control, which really led into relationships and people were too controlling in relationships, but also intrusive thoughts and things like that. And they're open for people to kind of jump in and talk about things and just an open forum. But my messenger is also run by um, volunteers from the suicide hotline. So if there is a crisis mm -hmm. and somebody reaches out through messenger, they will be taken to the right people because I'm not a doctor. So no, but I, I think that you do provide some information for individuals where they, you weren't given any information other than a name of a psychiatrist to give you more meds. I got an emotion wheel. So, you know, that's what I got. An emotion. <laughs> um, for borderline, I did not have an understanding of emotions at all. I knew happy, sad, and mad, but it wasn't happy, sad, and mad. It was ecstatic and furious and suicidal. That was it. Mm -hmm. So I literally had to sit and learn kind of all of the emotions again because um, I either felt too much or I felt nothing at all. So that's a borderline. Now, I, it and again, stop me if need be. Um, yeah. Do you think, and again, I grew up with dysfunctional parents. Both my parents were alcoholics. And, you know, from that perspective, I had, we had, we all say we all had our own issues. My, my brother, my sister, and I had issues that had come from that, including homelessness and, um, you know, not being able to enough food in the house, uh, any number of things, the, the fights, the arguments, domestic violence. So do you, do you feel that um, your environment may have contributed to to any of those issues? My borderline, definitely. Um, and it's not to villainize anybody because my mom right. was not an alcoholic. She was not on anything. She was just a single parent and had to work a lot. And unfortunately, that meant some of my emotional needs were not met. Um, just because she couldn't be there. She can't be in two places at right. once. My dad was not around. Um, so for me, that helped a lot with abandonment issues, which comes with borderline as well, you know, cause especially when I got, I didn't see my dad for 10 years. So, you know, from the age of five to the age of 15, there was no dad. Um, my mom had boyfriends, but you know, we won't even get into that. It's not the same. Um, when I finally did have my dad start to come around, my dad would be late all of the time or he'd say he's coming and then not show up and things happen. It wasn't intentional ever that mm -hmm. he did that, but it led to issues with me because now if somebody is late, I trigger, you know, mm -hmm. uh, like they're not coming, you know, now, now what's called splitting to where like I had this person on a pedestal and now they're a monster. They're an absolute villain in my story, you know, and I must destroy them. So to speak, not not in, literally, you know. But we're speaking figuratively. Uh, yes, figuratively. Yeah, figuratively. Theoretically, 
Um, and I understand that, you know, uh, my parents divorced also at a young age. I lost my father when I was uh, 15 years old. And uh, so I, I do relate to that. My mother was a single mother raising three kids or trying to raise three kids. And especially in that time period, without giving away my age, you know, w women had a hard time. You could be a secretary, you could be a waitress. You know, there weren't a whole lot of high paying jobs back then. So, you know, you busted your butt to make a living and to support your kids and so forth. So I do understand that. Um, I basically, when my sister left the house, I had to help raise my brother, um, which created resentment in his own issues in regard to that. And uh, we didn't have a father around. So I do, I empathize with you. I do understand where that comes from. I do understand the issues that come with that, uh, that are long-term. It took me, well, now I'm going to give my age away a little bit. It took me 50 years to come out of some of that. You know, and, and even now, still, I, I can think back and go, ah, well, that's why this is still bothering me, or that's why that's still bothering me, or that's why I'm still having an issue with this. Same thing with time. You and I have a, a commonality within that. If somebody is late, I'm really pissed. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I can, yes, I'll just say yes. <laughs> uh, definitely understand that. Um, well, I mean, I think it, it in regard to back to the to your project. Uh, I think even providing resources that you didn't have when you were kicked out the door, basically, uh, is a positive thing because not a lot of people understand where to turn to and how to turn to or how to ask for help. Uh, would you have any recommendations on somebody if they are starting to go through that uh, can can ask for help? Because um, I know that we all have this stigma. We we're supposed to, well, guys, you have to man up, you know, women, yeah. pull your, pull your skirt up, pull your pants up, pull yeah. your, not pull your, your skirt, pardon me. <laughs> exactly. And, and, you know, get over it, so to speak. How can somebody reach out and ask? Honestly, the best way is just to go on social media and ask. There's no, there's nothing to be afraid of. The people that you have on your social media are your friends, right? Your family. These are people that you should be able to reach out and say, hey, I'm struggling and I need help. And if that's not comfortable for you, there are plenty of groups, plenty of pages on Facebook, on Instagram that you can join. And there are, there are people there that can help you. Um, I know for a fact there's one just for ADHD alone that has over 10,000 members. And the way that those people found that was they typed in ADHD support. <laughs> And they found it. So if making a post isn't for you because maybe you're not as open about your mental health, then that's okay too. You could type in support groups on Facebook and they are all there to help. Well, I appreciate that. I, you know, I, I think that, uh, again, uh, the key to success in helping to manage this is a communication. Yep. You know, you just have to and reach I out. I think when it comes to, you know, therapists and psychiatrists, people kind of get a little scared and nervous about that. I always recommend going to a therapist, but support groups are a good way to start. I, I agree with that as well, because some people think if I go to a, if I go to a therapist, if I go to a psychologist or if I go to a psychologist, then people are going to think that I'm messed up. I'm crazy. Yeah. You know, and that, that you know, oh, you see a therapist or you see a psychiatrist or you see a psychologist then they kind of get a little uh, a little distance 
from us when we have to say that we're having to go through therapists or therapy. In the 50s and the 60s, they kind of made it almost a joke. If you watch these old movies and TV shows, well, I'm going to go see my therapist. And we'll go, oh, she's back there. Yeah. You know, <laughs> or take a Valium. You're having an episode, take a pill. Yep. Having an episode, take a pill. Having an episode, take a pill. I'm uh, sorry to say that it is still like that, except now it's lithium instead of Valium. There you go. Take some lithium. So. Exactly. They just exchange one for the other. Um, comedy. Do you have any advice for anybody that wants to break into comedy? Just do it. That's really it. I, I know so many people are like, oh, I would love to do it, but no, but find some stage time, find an open mic, grab a mic and do it. Because believe it or not, the comedy community is very supportive of newcomers. Always. You will never get booed off the stage. You will never hear, you know, you shouldn't be here or anything like that it will always be pretty welcoming. So I always suggest to just do it. How do you handle hecklers? How do you what? Handle hecklers. How do I handle You make a joke out of them. That's the worst. That's like the best thing you could do for people who are heckling is to include them as part of your act. Because now, number one, that's really what they wanted when they're heckling is to feel included in some way. But number two, if they didn't, you're bringing a spotlight on them as a heckler and nobody ever wants that. So always my biggest piece of advice is just to include them in your act and roast them like a pepper. Brilliant. I like that. Brilliant. <laughs> I uh, would like to talk about how somebody can get a hold of you and uh, whether or not you want to see you as a comedian, watch your videos. Again, they're pretty good. Um, Thank you. Get a hold of you through your mental health project and or listen to your podcast. How do we get in touch with you? So to find more about me and all of my projects, you can go to cacanoobl.com. That's C-A-K-A-N-O-O-B-L-E.com. And to find out more about my mental health project, you could go to mentallykillproject.org. That has everything you need on there, including all of the social media links to join any of the lives or be a volunteer in any way, because I'm always looking for volunteers. Your girl is tired. Um, to find my hoe on the go podcast, I'm on all of the podcasting platforms, Spotify, Apple, um, iHeartRadio, you name it, I'm everywhere. But you can also find it on Twitter at the OG Ho on the go or on Facebook at facebook.com slash hoehandbook23. That's a lot of hoes. <laughs> There's a lot of hoes. Uh, I, 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 but I appreciate that. You, uh, I know you're an entrepreneur. Uh, we didn't touch on that very much earlier, but I know you're an entrepreneur. Okay. You have a business that you help people who are wanting to start a podcast or write a book um, yep. and, and some other things. Can you, we talk about that briefly? Sure. Um, so I do have a management company. I help people who are doing podcast starter ups. I kind of give them just an outline and a guide and consultation hours to how to market and advertise your podcast before you even launch it. Because I have done um, project coordination and marketing and advertising for a long time through my day job. So I also help with social media management if need be. And I do graphic design so I can make your logos, your intro videos, your outro videos. 
things like that. And I also do social media posts and I write for people. I think a lot of people want me to write for their web pages and stuff, their intro, their bio, things like that. What a diverse set of skills that you bring to the world. I do, yeah. <laughs> That's a good thing. That's a good thing that you to reach out for all that. Um, well, I, I, I want to make sure that all of those contact information is in the uh, uh, show notes and on the webpage dedicated to our episode uh, so that everybody has easy access how to find you. I know that your book is going to be rewritten. You're trying to get it released for, uh, just to reiterate, released for uh, 2023 by June. I hope so. <laughs> it should be out. That'll be a good thing. And when that comes out, obviously, please keep in contact and let me know when that is released. And I'll make sure that it gets put in the show notes as well. So, again, people can find that too. Um, this is one more thing before you go. So, do you have any words of wisdom you can share? Sure. So, especially when it comes to mental health and just people in general, we spend a long time wearing a mask just to please the people around us, whether it be our family, our friends, our coworkers, things like that. But I'm here to tell you that one of two things are going to happen when you wear a mask. Number one, you're either going to become that mask and you're going to feel like crap. Or number two, that's going to eat you alive and you're going to feel even more like crap. So do not fake anything about yourself. No faking appearances, no faking smiles, no faking orgasms, no faking anything. Be real, be 100% authentic and true to you, and the right people will love you no matter what. Brilliant words of wisdom. Thank you for sharing those. I really appreciate it. Thanks. Christy, thank you very much for being part of the show. I really appreciate you sharing your wisdom, your experiences, your journey and helping us to educate people. Hopefully we've inspired and motivated individuals who have or want to reach out because of um, their own maybe questions in regard to mental health and that uh, you have a solution for them on your website. And uh, I look forward to having maybe another conversation down the road. Me too. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of One More Thing Before You Go. Check out our website at beforeyougopodcast.com. One More Thing Before You Go, established 2010. All rights reserved.